From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Awards Circuit Podcast. After The Handmaid's Tale star and executive producer Elizabeth Moss made her directorial debut on this season's third episode, she was eager to jump back behind the lens, and so she did. Part of the reason why I wanted to do it, though, was because I felt like I had kind of figured out who I was as a director on three, and then it ended. And I wanted the opportunity to to do more. And eight and nine are so different from three that I wanted to see if I could do it again. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talked to Elizabeth Moss about some of the big developments on this season of The Handmaid's Tale and what it was like to direct those pivotal episodes. Later on, we chat with Alan versus Pharaoh filmmakers Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. But first, on the Variety Awards Circuit Roundtable, we discuss the rise of genre programming at the Emmys. It's all next on Variety's Awards Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast Roundtable. I am, of course, Michael Schneider, joined as always by the hardworking Danielle Terciano. Danielle, welcome. Thank you. We are knee deep in Emmy Extra editions right now. I hope everyone's been getting them virtually or in their mailboxes or on their doorstep. Do we send them on doorsteps? I don't know, but hopefully we you're do. getting them. We do. I'm hoping people are seeing the physical copies because this is the second year of doing them producing them remotely. I'm hoping somebody has a physical copy and they can just yeah. tweet me about it because I have yet to see a physical copy. <laughs> well, luckily you can also get them online. Uh, they're, they're doing a good job of pushing that out. So check them all out. Also here, as always, Jazz Tanke, who has been busy moderating and, and doing all her stuff. Jazz, welcome. Hello. And Danielle, you are doing an amazing job with the Emmys Extra Editions. I have one on my kitchen table, so <gasps> I'll tweet you after the podcast. Yeah, and you have tons of stories in there too, and Mike has tons of stories in there. So it's a team effort. Adam's about to have a story in there who I just, spoiler alert. Sorry, Mike. Sorry. <laughs> spoiler alert. Who else is in the clubhouse this week? The one and only Adam B. Very. Adam. Hi. Yes. Danielle, I'm, I'm literally rounding third on the on the piece that I owe you after the end of this recording. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. So, we have some time. Yeah. So, uh, yes, thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's a real honor to be here. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love allowing you to procrastinate and not get your story into Danielle. So we'll just <laughs> we'll just keep chatting up. Well, Adam, I'm glad you're here because, you know, what, one of the many big stories of, of award season is the the growth of genre. And, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the longest time, the, the rule pretty much in the Emmys were, ex- with a few exceptions, Lost being one of them, genre was just completely ignored by the Emmys. Um, but as we saw with Game of Thrones, that rule has started to change. And, you know, Mandalorian did quite well last year, especially in the crafts uh, categories. But this year, it feels like even more, uh, uh, you know, all bets are off and, and genre is, is being embraced a, a little bit more, at least. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think that Game of Thrones really kind of uh, uh, opened the door to allow for all kinds of genre shows to begin to be seen within, I think, Academy voters anyway, as worthy of awards attention. I think the the first, to my memory, and I think, Mike, you might have a much better memory on this than I, the first real show to break that barrier was Star Trek The Next Generation, which got a Best uh, Drama nominations for its final season. And that was really the first time like a sci-fi show of that kind had gotten nominated in many years. Although in the modern the era, original, yeah. Yeah, the original Star Trek got, got a fair number of top-line 
uh, Emmy nominations when it first premiered. Yeah, uh, but back then there were like 20 shows on TV. Exactly. Period, so <laughs> not <laughs> so as many to choose from. A lot easier to get a nomination. A lot easier. Um, and, but I think the you know, um, you know, between, after Game of Thrones, I think that the show that really really kind of changed the game was Watchmen because it, it, you know, Game of Thrones at least had a sort of like period sort of sheen on it. So you could, you could look at all the sort of crafts elements of it on top of all the writing and acting. Whereas Watchmen is a contemporary show for the most part. And uh, it was a straight on comic book adaptation about, about masked vigilantes. And that was, you know, ran the table for a lot of the award season and in the limited series category. So I think this year, you know, you've got, you, you know, on top of The Mandalorian getting a best drama series nomination last year, I think like a lot of people agree that Mandalorian had a better season this year in season two, even stronger. Um, so you might actually, you know, you, I could see possibly some writing nominations coming out of that or, uh, you know, directing. Um, and then you've got one guess actor, best guest actor. Exactly. Um, you could see, and I, I think WandaVision is a major contender in the limited series category, which is the most insane category I've experienced. I've seen in Emmy, any Emmy season, maybe ever. I just, I like, there's going to be some broken hearts, uh, when the nominations come down. So there's just too many shows that are not going to get in there. But WandaVision, I think, is going to have a lot of weight behind it because I think Kevin Feige is wants to for you know that show to sort of break the same barriers that maybe Black Panther did on the movie side. Um, and then um, you know on you've got a few other genre shows that I think have some real crafts interest, like uh, Shadow and Bone on Netflix um, was was you know there was a lot of interest in that and. Um, the boys on Amazon, there was, you know, I think that that caught a lot of attention and really sort of shook up the idea of what you could do with superhero storytelling. Um, so there's a lot to sort of talk about in the genre space this year for the Emmys more so than there's, I think, ever been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jazz, uh, what, what do you think? Uh, back that up in terms of crafts, especially, uh, who's, who's sort of out there, uh, maybe more in the hunt than, than usual this year. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, what Adam said, I definitely think like WandaVision, we'll sh we're definitely going to see a lot of that in the crafts. We'll probably see Lovecraft Country in there. Maybe even the Falcon and Winter Soldier. Like, I think there's going to be a wealth of new shows. The Boys on Amazon is incredible. And I think that's a standout. And that's, you know, Amazon's done a great job promoting that show too. So I feel like there is going to be a lot showing up in crafts. I don't know about limited series, Adam. I agree with you. It is, it's heartbreaking to, to even just pick, you know, the, the ones that you do like your top contenders, but that changes every day. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. Crafts will be very interesting. There's going to be, and I'm sure like the Mandalorian will, will return and make a big show too. So Disney plus. Yeah. Lovecraft's Country is an interesting example, though. I I'm, thank you for reminding me, Jess, because one of the things about j the genre shows especially is I, I wonder if the having to stick the landing is going to be a big factor in which shows get over the hump. Some of these shows are limited series, so I think a lot of people were happy with the ending at WandaVision, if not thrilled, whereas Falcon and the Winter Soldier started really strong and then people felt like it kind of lost momentum as it went. And similarly with Lovecraft Country, 
I loved that show, except for the finale. The season finale was a mess, I thought. So, I, you know, I, I'll be curious to see exactly how that kind of shakes out once people start really looking at it. Yeah, Danielle, what do you think? Uh, you know, the, these are all interesting shows. That, you know, sci-fi and genre has always sort of touched on ish, social issues and, and really have, have, have sort of uh, been a way to reflect real real life and, and sort of bring in people who maybe aren't traditionally sci-fi or, or comic book fans. And, and a lot of these shows did exactly that from Watchmen to Lovecraft Country. You think that helps in, in sort of get, getting people who would otherwise sort of stay away from these kind of shows? I do. I mean... That's what got me into these shows. I'm not a traditional genre person. I didn't grow up reading comic books, um, but I find myself now, you know, Lovecraft Country is a show I've been talking about since Winter Awards that I think deserves more attention. I think the what really also, as you guys all talked about, limited series being so full, on the other side, drama series is not. <laughs> you know, there are eight slots and... I'm hard pressed to think of eight right now that I know definitely would get it. I feel like that opens the door for some more genre in there. You know, the Lovecrafts, the boys, even Falcon and the Winter Shoulder. We've seen, in addition, obviously, to Mandalorian, we've seen um, them, the Academy voters, nominate multiple genre shows in that category before with things like Stranger Things. And, you know, that's not in the running now. So I feel like the combination of more of a open playing field and the fact that it's, it's doing important storytelling, but it's not doing it in a way that makes it feel like school or that makes you feel like, ugh, I have to sit through this. It's too heavy. You know, I think that helps in, in a time where, you know, our world is very heavy and we want, we want some sort of escape. Yeah, another show that we should bring up because it is very dystopian and and, and sci-fi esque, of course, is Handmaid's Tale. Elizabeth Moss happens to be this week's guest on the episode, who, who you talked to, Danielle. But Handmaid's another example of, of a show that sort of touches on all those things. Isn't traditionally sci-fi, but it is futuristic. It is dystopian. It is very much in this this genre. Although I will say, based on this week's episode, when they they finally put a date on where they are in time and it doesn't feel so futuristic anymore. Mm -hmm. It feels like they're living right alongside of us. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've talked about that for a few years now and where does that fall in, in the genre conversation? Because it is outside of, you know, our current history, but it, it is very easily an alternate history. And I, I feel like that's a, that's a great example of a show. Like it's gotten so much Emmy love before, like, you know, that'll get nominated again. Danielle, I, you, you, as you were talking, it occurred to me, given how crowded limited series is and how not so crowded drama series is, that maybe the the makers of Mayor of Easttown should not be so shy about talking about doing a season two of the show. <laughs> I mean, I think it's too late for them. I mean, they're, they're out there saying limited series, all of HBO's FYC says limited series, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, maybe they, maybe they should have thought about that prior. But too late, I think. I, I also think, listen, after what happened with Big Little Lies, like, you got to know pretty early on what you're doing. Because Watchmen didn't get that kind of blowback when it went drama at the Winter Awards last year and then switched to limited for Emmys. I think it probably would have gotten a little bit more attention if it was the other way around. Because it's like, you're, you're, you're saying you're limited until you do so well and then you want to milk it for more. Um, I feel like... I feel like that is Mayor of Easttown's maybe downfall is if they're like, look how well we did. Now we're coming back for more. That doesn't feel so organic. It's, yeah. the, the, it's Downton Abbey <laughs> all over again. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll see. I mean, if they listen, if they came up with a, a new story, I would for sure watch it. 
But I do feel like there would be some cynicism around the, well, why are you doing this? You know, do you really have more to say or what's happening here? Isn't everyone in the town dead now, too? Is, <laughs> like, how do you... They're all in jail, except for uh, Julianne Nicholson, who yeah. should probably be in jail. But whatever. <laughs> Brad did not want to do that. He, you can read that on Variety.com. Yeah, it becomes a very different show in season two. Um, <laughs> But but yeah, it, it is interesting this this ongoing you know debate now of like what do you do with with limited series now that it's become so unwieldy and and you know do you divide it up or are there sort of you know I, in an upcoming column I talk about maybe you need a separate anthology category to at least separate that from limited because it is just crowded now that this is the way I, I suppose we watch and produce TV or these one and done shows. It does really feel like the Emmys are not the the way the Emmys slice things up is reflective of a 20th century thinking that is not really connected to the way that people consume TV in 20. I mean, there's also the whole comedy versus drama versus dramedy issue which is a little bit older, but it just it does feel like maybe there needs to be some sort of radical rethink. I don't know. It just well, you know- it just doesn't it doesn't feel like it's connected to how people consume TV now. What's interesting is, is uh, yeah, I went back recently to kind of look at some of the old categories in the 60s, uh, 50s and 60s, and it was always changing. It's always been just a mess. You know, one year they had an anthology category. A couple of years they had a Western category. They kept changing the name of, of a lot of these different categories. The thing is, TV has always been fluid. It's always changed. And the TV Academy has always struggled to keep up with it because right when they're like, okay, we cracked this nut, now we're going to combine TV movie and miniseries because there aren't many miniseries anymore. Then the next year, suddenly there's like a dozen limited series. Oh, you know what? We're going to, we're going to pull them back again and, and do separate categories again. Uh, remember this year, of course, they merged sketch and, and talk. Maybe they need to, because there aren't many sketch shows. That was sort of, was a different issue of just people being up in arms. But nonetheless, at some point it looked like there were going to be a ton of sketch shows when Key and Peele and, and, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of these other shows, Amy Schumer were, were there, they were all sort of like, you know, big and, in a moment in time, but then right when the TV Academy pivots, boom, that trend is over. So it's always going to be an issue with the Academy and trying to keep up with, with all of this. I was going to say, I wonder if they're going to change and add like new categories in after this year, just as Adam said, because of the way people are consuming content. It's just wait and see. But I don't think we're going to get any new categories like now, but I'm sure they're discussing it and they're thinking about it and we'll see some change for sure. That's what's interesting about what you guys were talking about in the beginning, you know, with all of the genre shows, does that get its own category? Because what they do is such a special skill of, yes, we're taking some very serious issues and we're sometimes couching it in metaphors and we're doing all these stunts and all these, you know, visually very interesting big pieces but then, as to Mike's point a second ago, like people get up in arms. So if you separate a category like that out and be like best genre show, well, why can't genre show be best drama? You know, like Game of Thrones was. So like, what is? The, it feels like there's no way to really answer this where everyone's happy. But I want to just circle back on something that Mike threw out in a previous podcast and say no to, which is more award shows. Because <laughs> that's the next logical step of more awards categories, more award shows. It's like, no, 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 no. Too many, too many. 
Yeah, well, you're not going to like an upcoming column where I suggest maybe you do a separate awards show for limited one season shows. Maybe that's like almost the Oscars or the Emmys, like the one and dones. And then a separate show focuses on the ongoing series. And maybe maybe that's a way to separate the two. Uh, Are you just splitting it out into multiple nights like they do creative arts? Because that's okay. Because that's ultimately the same show, just more manageable because it's shorter birth there's no way though no they'll never do it but we're there's just, no way well, <laughs> we're having fun the, with it the, the ratings for the emmys are like all award shows are, are are tanking the idea that like people will tune into multiple nights of, of award show they could just... be on tiktok adam they don't have to be on tv right, right. <laughs> tiktok's well, you, getting in the emmy game so you, you sell one of them to netflix and netflix just throws money to keep the tv academy going and it's like the tony's going on on paramount plus you know just just throw them on the streaming services i mean it is like you know there's also the fact that like the broadcast networks are 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 broadcasting a show that has nothing to do with them anymore, which also is a separate, almost a whole separate conversation right, to have. Right. Except, <laughs> except this is us and Sterling K. Brown. They're like single and family. honestly, I mean, this year though, again, because there's like so few returning favorites coming, like it feels like this year broadcast could come back. Not in every single category in every slot, but there are some broadcast shows that I think have a much bigger chance this year given the openness of the field. Yeah, yeah. I mean, comedy especially. I mean, everyone loves Ted Danson. Everyone loves Kenan Thompson. You know, those those are names that you know definitely could be in the mix. So, so there could be a little bit of a renaissance there. Um, so long weekend. We just uh, you know the May thirty first was the final day of eligibility. So pencils down, everyone. The, the shows are all in. Um, did any of you take any opportunity to catch up or, or watch something over the long weekend that you hadn't had a chance to see yet? And uh, what what uh, what did you sort of choose? I'm getting, my husband and I are getting caught up on Hacks, uh, which is something that was is been very popular in the Slack hallways of Variety. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, I've been really uh, just, you know, just the difference between what Jean Smart did in Watchmen versus what she did in Mayor of Easttown versus what she's doing in Hacks. It's it's astonishingly well-crafted character building that is so, like, it's so innately Jean Smart, but also, like, very different people every time. Um, so that's been... Uh, and, you know, the I, I we watched the fifth episode, which is the one where... Um, the the comedy writer whose name is now escaping me goes on the sort of night with this guy that she just sort of met um, that ends in a surprising twist and they kind of walk they, they spend a lot of time around you know in and around Las Vegas and it was so well done it made me nostalgic for going back to Las Vegas which is something that I never thought that I would say so uh, that that should tell you how much. How, how good it is. Although uh, I, I have it on good authority that a lot of that work was done in sound stages uh, and not, they didn't actually, like for some of it, they went to Vegas, but a lot of it was done in sound stages for, for COVID reasons, which is also kind of remarkable that that many extras shooting in a COVID safe environment. Yeah, no, that that's a good one. Um, I've been ca- catching up on Mythic Quest, um, which... It's been sort of a, a favorite of mine that uh, the my, my boys have gotten into as well, even though there's parts of it that are slightly inappropriate, but I'm a terrible parent, so what can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> They're old enough. They know all the words. They, they know what's going on. But 
That's that's a fun one. Speaking of which, that will be the first in-person panel that I moderate on June 7. And Apple's doing a bunch of them. I, I was asked to do one, um, and I just didn't feel comfortable, so I, I declined it. But it's it's interesting to see who's starting to get back into that space and who is not quite there yet. Yeah. Jazz, have you done any in-person yet? I'm doing my first in-person Q&A tonight, but it's for In the Heights. Um I know that FX are doing in-person Q&As at the Rose Bowl. Um, so as Daniel said, like they're starting to do in-person. There's, we're, we're slowly being uh, pushed, not pushed, pushed is a strong word. <laughs> we're slowly being given the option of like doing in-person Q&As now. And it's whether you're comfortable doing it. But no, I haven't done one yet. Tonight will be the first. I did my first in-person interview last week, uh, and it was Emmys related. It was uh, interviewing uh, Tommy Schlamme about the West Wing When We All Vote special on HBO Max. We went to the actual Orpheum Theater where they shot the, they recreated the the West Wing episode, Hartsfield's Landing. And um, sort of preview of coming attractions for a, a, a segment that will be on um, Variety.com later. Uh, it was just a wonderful, lovely conversation. And Tommy Shalami was so game to talk about how they kind of transformed this uh, this episode into a sort of a piece of live theater in a weird way. But, um, the, you know, as I said to, um, you know, Preston, our, our, our video producer and Meredith, who, who executive produced it, um, uh, just getting out of the house was lovely. Just being able to just <laughs> just being able to get in my car and go some place that was other than my house and talk to a live person was was wonderful. And then it was gravy to then also be able to talk about a show that I you know was you know it's, that's the West Wing was one of my sort of like core Adam shows. My husband knows anytime he sees me watching it, I've had a bad day and need to sort of recharge mm-hmm. a little bit. So um, that it, that was really nice to be able to do that. Yeah, it's oh, funny. Yeah. I still don't want to leave my house. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm going to Amazon's <laughs> pop-up for the boys uh, over the weekend because they said I don't have to get out of my car. And I was like, you know, that's the compromise. It's a drive-through yeah. experience. They give you food. And I was like, you know what? That's that's sort of out of my house. It, it counts. I'm going to count it. But it's still in my own little bubble. Um, so we'll see how that goes. But, you know, a couple of weeks from now, maybe I'll feel differently. Well, we'll see. And we'll see what happens in September if we're all sitting there at the uh, LA Live Microsoft backstage at the Microsoft Theater. Stay tuned, everyone. And with that, uh, Danielle, anything you want to say about the uh, Elizabeth Moss uh, interview we're about to listen to? Well, I will say a major spoiler alert if you haven't yet watched this week's episode of The Handmaid's Tale, because we do talk pretty in detail about what June goes through and then, you know, her process to direct it because she also, this was one of the three episodes that she directed this season. Very cool. Very cool. So check that out. And uh, thank you so much, Adam, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a real pleasure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, Jazz and Danielle, we will see you next week. Yay. <laughs> Where's the enthusiasm? <laughs> It's Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. 
When Elizabeth Moss chose the third episode of The Handmaid's Tale Season 4 to mark her directorial debut, she did so because she wanted the challenge of taking characters she knew so well to new places, literally and physically. But when she chose the eighth episode, entitled Testimony, as the next one to helm, it was because she was looking for another challenge. Moss ended up stepping behind the camera again for a two-episode block that began with Testimony and concluded with Episode 9, Progress, which streams June 9. The defense is going to come at you hard. I'm not nervous or worried. I can't wait. Anger is a valid emotion. It's necessary to heal. But we can't live there. Why does healing have to be the only goal? Why can't we be as furious as we feel? Don't we have that right? I ask for justice. In testimony, Moss's character June has been living in Canada, reunited with her husband, baby daughter, and best friend. But Moss notes she doesn't know who she is in Canada. Variety's Danielle Terciano sat down recently with Moss to discuss season four of The Handmaid's Tale and the process of directing these episodes in the middle of the pandemic. They began by discussing how she ended up directing so many episodes this season. So the the first one I did, you know, we decided that we were going to try to make it work for me to direct in season four. We had sort of thought about it in season three and then just schedule wise, it didn't work. Um, so we thought, okay, let's make this happen in season four. Um, and we knew it would have to be an early episode. We knew we were going to block shoot the first three episodes. And so, and that's how I was going to be able to prep before we, uh, we, we started because at the time we were all worried about how an actor who's leading the show preps. We got over that by the end of the season, Uh, (laughs) clearly, Um, but we were all very concerned about it. And and so um, there was kind of a episode two or three thing between Bruce and I, and um, I chose episode three because I quite honestly, I just wanted the challenge. I thought it was a very difficult episode. I thought it was very unusual and had new set pieces that we weren't, you know, were going to be brand new to us. And, and I, I loved June's journey in it. I loved her stuff with Lydia in it. I have a great relationship with Ann Dowd. So I wanted to explore all of those things. Um, I also got to work with OT and, and era. So there was, you know, a few reasons why, and then um, eight and nine. So how that happened to basically, you know, we shot for two weeks, we shut down, we came back six months later, we continued this super block of the first three episodes. And then somewhere in, I think, I think somewhere near the end of that, we needed directors for the rest of the season. And we were looking, we had Christina Coe for four and five, but we were looking beyond that and we didn't have anyone. And um I had gotten great responses from episode three from the studio and the network. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring. Um, So I did, I called Warren Littlefield and I said, I have a crazy idea. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for this. What do you think? And he said, great. And um, luckily it was all, it was, it was embraced. Part of the reason why I wanted to do it though, was because I felt like I had kind of figured out who I was as a director on three and then it ended. And 
I wanted the opportunity to, to do more and eight and nine are so different from three that I wanted to see if I could do it again. It's interesting that you, that you phrase it that way, that they're so different because it feels like a lot of episodes this season are so different. Just, you know, we're moving her through space differently than we ever have before. And you mentioned obviously episode three being, being complicated in, in some of these new set pieces, but I tell me if I'm wrong, I would argue that episode eight looks equally complicated, if not more so because of the emotional depth that you have to mine both as an actor and then as a director who is filming these women who are, yes, they're fictional, but they're in such vulnerable positions, not just June actually testifying, but then in that support group, you know, confronting this woman who is ultimately your, your abuser. Um, was that, I, I guess, where did that fall in, in, in terms of how you saw it as a challenge or, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. that's actually very smart of you because you're absolutely right. It, it, eight and nine were actually much more difficult. Okay. <laughs> You're absolutely right, because for a couple reasons, three is like, it's just, you know, I I know what that is. You know what I mean? I know that is Handmaid's Tale, you know, on speed. It's like, that is, I know that, I know what that looks like. And although we created Stuart Middlecombe, the DP and Elizabeth Williams, production designer, did create all these new set pieces and new looks. And we were inside all the time and there were these fluorescent red and green and blue. And it was very different and cool. At the same time, um, it was something that we felt came kind of naturally. And then eight and nine, we had to take, we were, we were experimenting with taking the Gilead look that we had done for so many years and bringing it with June into Canada. And how do you do that? And what does that look like? What does, how do you transfer that look? The sets are so different. Mm -hmm. The only constant you have is June. So how do you transfer that? So that was very difficult to figure out. And and I'm very proud of how we did it. Um, And then, like you said, it was, it was much more challenging emotionally and much more challenging as a director working with so many more actors, you know, I worked, I mean, I, I, I'm so glad I did eight and nine because I ended up getting to work with everybody. I get yeah. it. I think the only person I don't think I got to work with was Amanda Bruegel, who I, which I was really bummed about because she's one of my closest friends on the show. Um, but I got to work with, you know, Maddie and, and, and just everybody. So it was very, uh, I almost preferred it in a way mm-hmm. because you know, I'm an actor first. And so the performance is my, and in the story is my, is my first priority and getting to work with these brilliant women and help them find new things and take care of their stories. You know, Alexis mm-hmm. is so beautiful in that episode. And I've worked so much with her. I was in the pilot with her, right. you know? So it, it just, that was extremely fulfilling and, and like and very challenging. And you called June the constant, which obviously, yes, you know, I mean, she is the central figure of the show, the title figure of the show. I am curious how you, ad- how you address who she is internally at this point, you know, when she's in Canada, Bruce has said a big part of this season is, you know, you, Gilead is kind of within you and, and you can't really escape it even when you physically escape it. And I, so I'm curious if you approach that as, she is very similar to how she was there or if you feel that she's been changed by how she was there. 
Um, I definitely feel like she has been changed by how she was there. I also think it kind of depends on, you know, what episode we're talking about because she, she changes so much with every episode and, you know, she's, she's different in two than she is in six and Mm. different from that than she is in nine. And, and obviously the end of seven is a huge marker for June. I feel like that is a, that is a turning point into the end of season four and then possibly season five. You know what I mean? That's when she, she's floundering. She doesn't know how, she doesn't know who she is in Canada. Who is she? Is she, is she a, a, a wife and a mother again? Is she, is she going to tackle Fred and Gilead with, um, through government and with bureaucracy? Or is she going to do handle things the way they do back, back home in Gilead, you know? And I think that she finds that at the end of seven with, through her fury at Serena, but that she's pregnant. Um, and that kicks her off for eight, nine and 10. Yeah. So that was, a, I, I, you know, I don't really think of her as any one thing throughout mm. the season. I do like that you just picked up on the fury because the anger is something that I've always felt was such an important part of the show. Like you have to stay angry to survive. Mm-hmm. And now you have this character who, yes, there's a lot of PTSD. There's a lot of trauma to get over, but she doesn't necessarily have to be on edge physically anymore. She's been removed from the environment where she's in that kind of danger. What is your approach to her anger now? You know, did you feel like we, we see in the support group, obviously, like she has it still within her. She's almost rallying it in these other women in a sense. But is it a survival mechanism or is that one of the areas where, you know, that's Gilead and that's you've been changed? I think it's both. I think it's um, it's part of who she is now post Gilead mm-hmm. um, after having been through everything she's been through and seen everything she's seen. I think if you went through that experience firsthand, you would be angry too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she says that in, in, in eight, she's like, why, you know, why can't we be angry? Why yeah. can't, why, why do we have to write our, why do we have to write our feelings down in our journals? Why can't we be like, fuck this shit, you know? And I think there's validity to that argument, you know? And now how she goes about it and <laughs> uses that anger in nine and 10, <laughs> is yet to be obviously <laughs> seen. Um, but I do think, I, I, maybe it's just because I play her, but I, I'm very much on her side as far mm-hmm. as, you know, is what they're doing in the resistance movement in Canada really going to get anything done? Mm. You know, that's the question. And that's the question June faces. Mm-hmm. Looking at the scene in eight where she's, she is testifying you didn't choose to let that anger out. Like she was very calm. She was very poised, not unemotional, but I mean, it was like a very uncomfortable for a different reason, you know, to hear these things come out. What went into that choice and what went into the choice too of, you know, choosing to slowly push in on one long shot, which I feel like just gave you more work as a performer, like to not have a cut point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's so much I could say about this. Um, (laughs) So the reason why I suppose I chose to play it the way that I played it was because I'm June is not 
an actress delivering a, you know, angry speech. She's written this speech. She's, she says at the beginning of, of the episode, uh, you know, I, I can't fucking wait. Like she's, she's written it. She's practically memorized it. She's, she knows that the way that she has to deliver this is in a calm Mm. Okay, so to get the information across. Um, and then she only sort of starts to lose it when it starts to get really personal. And she starts speaking about Mrs. Lawrence and the other women and the women who died and, um, you know, her friends. Uh, and then um, the one shot thing. So this is interesting. So the one shot thing, it was what Stuart and I kind of wanted to do. We thought, God, wouldn't it be crazy if this was all one shot? And uh, we thought, oh man, no, it's never going to work. It's never going to work. No one's ever going to want it. It's never going to work. And, uh, but we thought, you know what, let's just, let's just try it. Mm-hmm. Let's just shoot it. And I said, look, I cannot say as a director, I cannot say about this actor, whether or not it's going to work. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a way it's insulting at all. I just, I just don't know if it works. And, um, and so well, we, oh, let's just try it. The reason behind it was that I didn't want to give the audience a chance to look away just as June is doing in that courtroom. I wanted you to look at it from the point of view of the judges. And I wanted you to not be able to look away and not be able to breathe or distract yourself Mm -hmm. or take yourself away from this story that June has to tell. And I felt like visually not breaking away was the way to do that. Um, and I actually, we actually ended up shooting, uh, a bunch of coverage. There's oh, coverage okay. for everyone in that scene because I didn't know if it would work and I'm not stupid as a director. And I was like, I'm not going to do this, right. shoot myself later. So I, I thought I better back myself up. But then in the edit, it just, as soon as you started cutting away, it, it lost something. It, mm-hmm. it, it let you breathe. And all of a sudden it lost its impact. And the best way to do it was not to cut away. Mm -hmm. Did you have that same feeling about some of the other pieces of the show in terms of how much to show, like how much to show, you know, this, this former aunt hang herself or, or even the confrontation in terms of, we want you to be uncomfortable, but we don't want to trigger you maybe. I think it just always comes from what tells the story the best, mm-hmm. you know? So for example, with Irene and her hanging, you know, you, you want it to be from Emily's yeah. point of view. So it's what Emily sees. It's the little flashes of the hand and the shoe and her face. And it's just, it's supposed to be from her point of view, you know what I mean? So it's about, you know, not making it, you know, it's kind of impressionistic in a way it's not, you know, very literal. Um, and, you know, from, you, you just try to never do anything that feels like you're just doing it because it looks cool. You know, sure. it has, because it won't work. Right. That way. It, it ends up not working. It's really interesting. Um, even a single shot, it has to be because this is the best way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to tell me a little bit about the, the Waterfords when they're walking out and they have a crowd and like, I got real 55% of white women vibes. I don't know if that was on purpose, but I'm curious about the size of that crowd. How much of that was maybe because of COVID? Like you just couldn't have as large a crowd or was it like, no, we also need to show that 
there are some supporters, but not a lot because they are in the wrong. Let's remind everybody what they're doing is wrong. Yeah, it was uh, definitely that, that it it had to feel realistic. It, It was only, you know, recently that the news about the pregnancy would have come out. And so their fan, the, you know, their fandom couldn't be outrageous. You know, they're not like, you know, Justin Bieber all of a sudden like, sure. they have to be, it had to be realistic. I think seeing anyone sort of supporting them in Canada was chilling, yeah. you know, you would have had like three people and you would have been like, Ooh. Um, and then we, it was largely BFX. We had 10 people. Oh, wow. Okay that we moved, moved, <laughs> moved, 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 moved to create however many it was. I don't even remember 50 or hundred. I don't even remember at this point, but we had a 10 person on camera mm-hmm. limit at the time that we shot it. So um, yeah, we just, it was, it's a beautifully done VFX job with only uh, 10 people at a time. Yeah. And I don't mean to gloss over the fact that like you made your directorial debut in COVID. So like, obviously it's a big undertaking to do it anytime. But now with all of these new rules and changes and things like that, limiting how many people you can have in a scene affects what you're doing, probably affects your vision. Did it or do you, or because this was how you made it, you didn't know any other way. So it wasn't that weird. It wasn't that weird. There's only one scene in episode three that we had to rewrite because of COVID. It's a scene, the scene between Luke and Moira on the porch. Mm-hmm. Originally was a scene at, at the vigil. You know how she says she's going to a yes. vigil? So originally it was at the vigil. Um, and there was like a pastor speaking and, and then they have their conversation on a bench because he doesn't want to really be a part of the vigil. Mm-hmm. So that was the only scene that was rewritten to accommodate COVID. Um, like we did the group stuff outside of the ICC. We just did it with VFX. Right. Uh, you know, so it actually, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as difficult as you would think. I, I love challenges like that. For example, mm-hmm. that vigil scene, that scene is one of my favorite scenes. It's one of the best scenes OT's ever done. I've seen him do. He's so beautiful in that scene. And I don't know if we would have gotten that mm-hmm. if we were somewhere else. And if that baby wasn't in it, you know what I mean? He wasn't holding the baby. And I don't know if we would have gotten it anywhere else. So it ends up being, uh, I think, a a blessing, um, Mm -hmm. you know, if you can think of it the right way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, you're you're so enmeshed, obviously, in the show as an actor and executive producer before you even started directing. Like, I talk to people all the time who call you, like, the person on the ground who knows the most. So what do you feel like, if anything, you did learn about June? this season? Because I will say, like, obviously from the audience, simply in episode eight, learning, like, dates of things, like where we were in time and, like, learning about, oh, she had a choice of going to the colonies or being a handmaid. Like, I didn't think they gave them any choice. Mm. These things that you already knew or are you still able to find areas where, no, this was a surprise to even me? Um, That I already knew because that's, I think... Uh, I think that's from the book or that we've, we've, sure. Something has happened. I I, I was going to say, I just don't assume that everything will follow. Like I've kind of, at this point, I kind of put the book aside and was like, I don't assume we'll hear if something was in the book that we don't know. I don't assume. Totally. 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 I feel like the things that the the new things I learn about her are are as she progresses as a character, you know, Mm. I'm very fortunate in the sense of, um, our show is so high stakes that like there's no, there are no wasted scenes. There are no like 
oh, whatever. I'm just going to like walk down the street into the coffee shop and like, or I'm just going to, it, it, there's nothing wasted in any scene. So even flashback scenes, it's like, there's such a reason for them. So I feel like I'm constantly learning new things about her as she develops into something new, mm-hmm. you know, which just isn't always, isn't always the case. Like we don't have a scene just to be funny or just to like, right. you know, give you some information you didn't have before. Like it's just not that kind of show. So for me, I'm constantly learning is one way to put it, but I'm also mm-hmm. just constantly like pushing in, in mm-hmm. a new direction. I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to kind of repeating, um, you know, emotions too much. So mm-hmm. I like to try to push as much as possible. It's a good segue into, I'm going to make you tease episode nine for us because, you know, the way we leave episode eight with the, like, I need to tell you about what happened with Hannah. Like, I didn't assume what she's about to say is the truth. Oh, yeah, that's- <laughs> so I, I'm curious, is that an area where she, where she's pushed, where she's pushed to either tell the truth and, you know, really mine this additional piece of trauma and, and maybe actually work through it with him, with Luke? Hmm. Um, God, how do I talk about nine? <laughs> nine, I think, without spoiling anything, I love nine. I think nine's, I love nine. Mm-hmm. Um, nine is about love. And I think the end of eight sets that up for us. Eight is about the women and anger and how women deal with trauma and anger and in different ways, mm-hmm. including Serena, you know, she deals with it by standing by her man. Right. She's not happy about it, but that's what she does. And so, um, Nine is about love. It's about old love and new love and how love can change and morph and how relationships can change into something that you never thought they would be. And I think that that's that's June's journey in nine. And that is also a couple of other characters' journey in nine as well, actually. It's really about choice and and so is 10 like what choice are you going to make that will ultimately settle your future Mm. nine is very much like it's nine is the end of nine it's just i don't know i can't even (laughs) (laughs) like wherever you think we are at the end of eight Mm -hmm. is just gonna be like completely blown apart Basically. I mean, I kind of feel like that a lot about a lot of the season in general, because, yeah. you know, I never really thought she was getting out of Gilead. I assume yeah. when she gets out, the show's over. Right. So, you exactly. know, I think, you know, you kind of reset your own rules in the sense of now, now she's out. And I think, I mean, obviously this is a question for the character herself, which I know she's grappling at with is just the now what of it. Like she's out, but it's not over. And Hannah's not out. And like how, when you're so far now, how do you fight? Yeah. And how do you go back to that life? How do you, how are you ever a normal person again? You know, how, how do you ever interact with anyone mm-hmm. as you once would have? Right. And she kind of is, I think, I feel like she's like just trying to keep it down. She's trying to bury it. She's trying to keep a lid on it. And I just, I'm not sure she's going to be able to. 
Or that you want her to maybe? Because I feel or like I, I don't want her to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how I feel, you know? And I, I and that's how June feels in, in eight when she's like, really? Is this what we, right. is this what we're doing? So I think when she goes home and, and says that to Luke, it's because she's starting to get herself back. So she's starting to be able to release things, you know, and sh- she's going to try and see if she can make a choice, mm-hmm. but splitting into these two different people again, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't wait to see it. I know. Uh, I can't <laughs> wait to see it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's Elizabeth Moss, star, executive producer, and now director on Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. After the break, the Allen vs. Farrow documentarians on chronicling Dylan Farrow's story. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. And we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Allen vs. Farrow directors Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering never set out to make a movie about the allegations of sexual assault made by Dylan Farrow against her father, Woody Allen. And nobody, even Dylan, expected her mother, Mia Farrow, to ever cooperate. Ziering and Dick were interviewing people who had spoken up following the Me Too movement, which is how they met Dylan Farrow. Following that interview, their producer, Amy Hurdy, said she wanted to investigate further. And that was the genesis of how Allen vs. Farrow began. Through interviews with experts, people involved with the case, and mountains of court documents and research, the filmmakers began to piece together a story that surprised them and audiences when it premiered on HBO in February of this year. Variety's Janelle Riley recently spoke with Dick and Ziering and asked that very question on whether they started out wanting to make a documentary on Dylan Farrow, or, as often happens with documentary filmmaking, if it began as one thing and became another. That was exactly it. And as I always like to say, our films find us, we don't find them. And we were working on something completely different. And it was actually first envisioned as a series, like just our phones started exploding post Me Too. And we thought, oh, let's just dive into the space. People are telling their stories now. I mean, we were sort of making films when this was not popular and no one was speaking. So we thought maybe we should jump in and just see what happens, see what we discover. And so we lined up a series of interviews at this amazing brownstone in Brooklyn. And Dylan was just one interview that we were doing that day. We had five a day. And in the course of her interview, we were listening to her and going, wait, what? Like, so, cause I'm, you know, in my late fifties, I thought I knew her story. Like I wasn't expecting all these things to come up that I was like, wait, that's not exactly what I remember or what I remember how it was portrayed in the media or public you know, common knowledge about it. So it was after that interview, Kirby, me and Amy Hurdy, our amazing, you know, investigative producer, we all spoke and Amy was like, I want to dive in. Like, let me go at this. I know there's more to this story than anyone ever knew or suspected. And I want to just, you know, give me a couple months and I'm just going to see where it, where it goes. And that's, that's the genesis. And so we said, okay. And that's how, it, that's how it became this project. So you had, Dylan had already agreed to speak to you because just just that was kind of amazing to me. I mean, I guess she has been speaking out more and more, but, you know, how did she feel when you approached her and said, you know, we want to make this more about you? Well, we never actually did that. We never collaborate with a subject. And it's, I think that's actually really important, important for people Mm -hmm. to know, especially documentarians. I mean, we're not 
we're, we're, we're objective investigative reporters. So it's kind of, there's a, it's a curious, <laughs> it's a curious interaction and an elaborate and complicated dance, but it isn't, we never said, this is all about you. We kept saying, we just did that one interview with her. As I said, it was part of a project where we were just looking into people who had spoken out and what their experiences were. And since she had spoken out, she agreed to speak with us. And in the course, I did this long interview and found out more about her backstory than I'd, I'd ever imagined. So we just, Amy kept pursuing it independent of Dylan, just like talking to other people, you know, finding the reporters who were there at the time. I mean, as you see in the film, you know, talking to experts, you know, we started doing our own research. She started getting hold of court documents. So it was more that direction. Um, and then we reapproached Dylan and said, we'd like to do a second interview. We're, you know, we're looking more into your story in particular. You know, we're not, we don't think you'll fit into the series. At that time, we were working on a series. And, and then she agreed to the second interview. So that's, that's kind of how it came about. And Kirby, for you, is it, you know, you guys have worked together so well in the past. You just sort of share a brain where you look at each other when you know you're on to something. Well, I, I think that's true. Um, and, you know, I think that what was really interesting about this story is everybody thought they knew the story. And once we started getting more and more information, we realized that there was so much more here to tell. And we realized that it it really deserved its own series at that point, because I mean, there's so much about these, this, it's, it's a family story on one hand. I mean, it's about a family who's lived through this and who's lived through this in the glare of the media, right? But it's also about this bigger issue too of incest because, you know, Dylan isn't the only person to experience this. Many, many millions of people have. So it was both this very intense private family story that we wanted to tell um, but it was also we wanted to open it up and and give it from this much broader perspective as well. And and that's kind of the way those are the kind of projects that we look for that are very strongly narratively driven and at the same time reach out and, and touch on many, many social and psychological issues as well. I mean, I feel and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but so many people's lives have been, you know, affected by incest. And yet I still think it's kind of a taboo topic um, in a lot of ways, which is sort of strange. We we're getting more and more comfortable talking about other things, but you know, why is incest so difficult to talk about? Well, I think for one thing, it is so profoundly painful. There is such a profound betrayal there that it often takes uh, someone who's a survivor decades to work through it. Right. And then I think another thing is, and I think, you know, Dylan said this is they, there really hasn't been a me too movement yet for incest. Right. I mean, people have come out, you know, over the last several years, very courageous people, but, you know, given the numbers of people that are survivors, I think we're still waiting for that. And hopefully this, this, you know, this series will help to propel that. I mean, as our, you know, our previous films about rape in the military um, and, uh, the, you know, the Invisible War and The Hunting Ground, which was about rape on college campuses, that really propelled the issue. Uh, and I think that hopefully, and we're, se we're seeing that because the responses we're getting from, from survivors, from therapists, from advocates, it, it really has changed things. And, you know, it's even changing things we think in the long term, even in the family courts, where it really needs to change. There's a 
confluence of reasons why incest is still the third rail in our culture. One is, A, as Kirby said, often as a child, you don't know that these are crimes. How could you know? It's your normal. I mean, I remember that in college, (laughs) we were all sitting around in the dorms one night, you know, freshman year. This is in the uh, 80s, early 80s. And I remember us all sharing our first sexual experiences. And this friend sitting next to me, you know, who had lived in the same floor of the dorm was like, wait, you guys didn't all sleep with your brother? And we all were like, oh my God. And that for me was like so instructive. So A, why don't people more know about it? A lot of times survivors only figure it out until much later. And then it's very complicated to come forward, right? All the family dynamics are really disrupted. So it's B, if you do come forward, the bar is really, really high. Um, you you, don't, you can't necessarily, in, in terms of proving it or pursuing a cr- criminal pursuit, because again, if the crimes happened when you were younger, you didn't save it. You know, you don't have eyewitnesses. So it's, and if you come forward and you're in public saying that this happened to you, it's unlike any other assault crime where you don't, you could say I was assaulted in college. I was assaulted in the military. No one would connect the dots and know who your alleged perpetrator is. If you said I was assaulted by a family member, it's a very finite circle. So you can be subject to libel, you know, suits. So we don't, I didn't know this, you know, going into this. I mean, I had always been interested in doing incest. I knew this as a result of our work in sexual assault, but that is why very often this has not yet been talked about. And as Kirby said, also, it's so traumatizing, right? I mean, it's it's kind of profound and torqued and complicated. This is your first love. This is a violation, yet it's pleasurable, yet it's taboo, yet it's, you know, so it, it isn't something that we really have reckoned with yet in our culture. And we hope and and are hopeful and given the response to Alan B. Farrow that this series will help others. And we've heard that, you know, feel safe at least or or, or feel seen or heard for the first time. And then I just want to say one thing, too, is that this is really a testament to Dylan's courage, right? Because the difficulty of coming forward, I mean, she was coming forward before there was Me Too. And in the face of a lot of media critique of her story and and she kept coming forward and i think the fact that she did that actually kind of provided a model for uh hollywood you know it sort of helped the me too movement happen and that's another part of this story we wanted to tell you talk about having sort of ideas of this case that you know you you later realize might not have been accurate. And I really thought that I knew everything about this case. I'd done all the reading, like I remember when it happened. And yet in my mind, I had been convinced that Mia Farrow was the one who went to the press and held these press conferences and was and like it was it was mind blowing to realize that someone I consider myself media savvy and I wasn't. Oh, wow. Um, and even with the two of you, like she, she didn't want to speak to you at first, did she? Oh, not at all. Not at all. That's why I was really clear. And also saying Dylan wasn't like, oh yes, please. I'll collaborate. Let's make a project about me. She was not also these, that family had been through hell. I mean, you see it 
right? I mean, the series is so wrenching, not only because of what they privately experienced, but what they publicly experienced. I mean, they were trolled before trolling existed. They were excoriated. Mia was vilified viciously with no evidence and by a chorus of media that accepted, you know, whatever Woody said as gospel because he had so much power and clout and so much love, you know, and uh, so, yeah, no, it was, um, she was, Mia was Absolutely. She was the opposite. She did not want to be interviewed, did not want to talk with us. Really reticent. So Amy Hurdy pursued her, you know, with respect um, for quite a long time, always getting a no. And then finally Dylan called her and said, Mom, you know, I think these people are different. I think they're really doing their homework. I think they're not just accepting common wisdom as truth. Would you do it for me? And then Mia felt compelled because Dylan had asked her, she says, I will do, you know, you're my daughter and I stood by you and I will do it. So as Kirby said, not only is this a testament to Dylan, but I really want to give out a shout out to Mia too, because I don't know that I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that I would have been able to do what she did and, 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 you know, have the trust to try one more time and come to, to come forward. I don't even say try one more time. I also want to clarify that this is the first time she's ever gone on camera and talked about this. That's how little, even though, as you said, Janelle, you remember, you thought it was her. No, she was always like, wait, what? This is a private situation. I, the children need to be protected. And the thing to protect them is to just deal with it internally. And she just was like a lamb to slaughter as a result. Forgive me for not knowing, but do you do the two of you trade off interviews or is one of you, you know, in charge of most of the interviews or how, how does this collaboration work? Well, Amy does the interviews. Uh, I mean, she's an incredible interviewer. She's done the interviews, you know, going all the way back to Invisible War. She's able to, um, you know, set up a, 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 a connection, I think, with subjects that I've really never seen anybody else be able to do so that subjects are able to feel, to be able to tell, to say things that they've never said before. Sometimes they've never said before to anybody mm -hmm. at all. And, um, and I think Amy is able to get really to the heart and soul of a subject and really allow audiences to see the experiences, see what they experienced through their eyes. And I think that's really, really important because for so long, that perspective, that survivor perspective was, was not seen. So, you know, Amy, Amy is uh, incredible at interviewing and she's incredible at a lot of things, but definitely at that. <laughs> that's so sweet. But I also want to say it's effective having us as a team too, because sometimes not so much with Alan B. Farrow, but if you watch any of our other films, especially I'm thinking back to Invisible War or Bleeding Edge, sometimes we also can do good cop, bad cop, where I do the lion's share and I'm very, you know, curious and puppy dog and empathic. And then if it's someone where, you know, we are actually having a lot of questions about what they're saying, then, you know, Kirby can come in. It's kind of like the way cops do and go, wait, you know, <laughs> let's go back to, you know, and they're not expecting it because they've been so sort of, you know, charmed, enamored, you know, talked for an hour and a half in a you know sympathetic and empathic space, I've seen that dynamic work and be helpful too. And also, it's 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 actually yeah. So I think that's one of our strengths. Um, and it's also just for the filmmakers listening to have two heads is better than one always because you know you can't. Sometimes there'll be something I miss that he'll hear and be able to circle back to. You know, so it's. I think it's always worked really well having having the two of us. 
So I have to ask you, you made the acclaimed documentary on the record about Russell Simmons and one of your interview subjects, Alexia Norton-Jones, gave an interview to Variety saying she regretted participating. How do you respond to that? Just, I, she's amazing. I have, you know, I, it's very, very hard. It's very painful for people. You see that in, in Alan V. Farrow. I mean, you, you see me as reticence to speak. I mean, trauma is trauma. And I just, I'm, sad and I feel for her and, you know, wish her nothing but love and good things on her healing journey. And, you know, she's amazing. (laughs) And she was amazing. And I'm, and uh, we've had amazing experiences talking, you know, that film, I'm at least happy that that film has actually been for most people, you know, an extraordinarily positive experience that, you know, we're all really proud to have been a part of. I, I know it's extremely positive for Drew Dixon, who who has uh, is continuing sort of this advocacy, and it made me think that film has resonated so much in the industry and is continuing to have an impact today. Um, I'm really curious how you think Alan V. Farrell will be looked at in a year. Are we going to keep seeing repercussions from this? Well, I think it, yeah, I think it, you're going. To, it's going to have an impact culturally for for many years. Um, I, you know, I yeah, I mean, you just needed to kind of look at the coverage. I, I, I was just astonished at how many editorials came out about issues that we wanted a discussion to start around, whether it was the discussion around art v artist, and you know, which we don't take a position on. We just want people to have that discussion, whether it's about how the criminal courts have mishandled these cases, uh, whether it's about this whole issue of grooming, which I don't, you know, uh, um, uh, perpetrators groom their victims, especially uh, if they're, you know, in, in within families, they have that opportunity to really do that. And I, I don't think, I mean, I think this has been revelatory for audiences, certainly not for survivors. So there were, I mean, I think this started, um, you know, a national, multiple national discussions that I I know are still ongoing and I think will be ongoing for years. I believe you have a standing offer to Woody Allen if he wants to speak to the two of you. And I'm assuming he has not taken you up on that. Uh, That's a good assumption. (laughs) No, we haven't heard from him, but the offer stands. We are here, we are interested, and we are very Mm open-minded and have a lot of questions. How do you feel when people say separate the art from the artist? Are are you able to do that, or do you you know do you think that's kind of BS? Well, I mean, that's really everyone's individual choice, right? I mean, um, I think it would be extreme overreach for us to tell people how to interact with, you know, their art, the art that they you know is is important to them. Um, but what what we do think is important is that people consider, you know, if if someone has this history, uh, if, you know, or is, or is perpetrated crimes, to consider that while you're looking at that, because it is it is part of you know the whole cultural experience. I mean, he, he or she, um, you know, an artist is. Uh, uh, you know, is promoted not only based on their art, but also based on who they are. And and so I, th- I think it's very appropriate to suggest to people that they consider it. But by no means are we saying don't watch Woody Allen films. That's I mean, some people absolutely will not do that. That's their choice. Others choose to. And that's their choice as well. Well, I think it's it is. 
Yeah, I don't think it's as complicated as people make it out to be. Obviously, art doesn't just drop from nowhere. So biography informs art, whether you like it or not. And it's super good and helpful to know certain biographical information because it makes you a richer interpreter of the art. So I don't, there's no downside there. The question for me or the issue comes up is if you know someone or you have strong suggestion that someone is criminally, is, is perpetrating, acting in ways that are criminal in their private space, you might then as a consumer elect to not support them and support their art because your economic support is granting them power, impunity, they can get better lawyers, they can win public approval. I mean, we see it, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, whatever it be. But anyways, it's it's gonna, so if you, you know, so I as a, you know, so if I, I might not now want to support Woody Allen films because of that, if I felt like I was allowing him to accrue more power, more impunity, and continue to perpetrate violence against other people in his private life. But at the same time, if I wasn't contributing to that economic ecosystem, then I don't, you know, Western civilization is littered with amazing work by people who've done horrific things. But thank God a lot of them are no longer alive and we can really enjoy enjoy the good and not feel conflicted about economically supporting them. But that's where I think it's just kind of, it's kind of clean to me. I mean, if you have, you know, some, you know, it's accountability and consequences for people that do things as opposed to let's just, you know, cover and bury and empower people doing bad things, which I think is a good thing and something all of our culture would agree on. On the flip side, I because, you know, obviously I follow Dylan on Twitter and I, I've seen how amazing this has been for her and also for Mia. And just and just as a side note, getting to remember all those great Mia Farrow performances and how much I miss her on screen. I'm really hoping she'll she'll get back to acting. Um, you know, you're you, that wasn't what you set out to do. That wasn't your job, per se. But that's got to be a lovely side effect to see how she is. Yeah, it's, it's been, that's been amazing. You know, it's, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very gratifying. I mean, we've seen that with so many of our films and so much of our past work and that's very lovely when it happens. I mean, we can't predict it or control it or, you know, it's everyone's experience is different, but for many, many, many people who have come forward, I think what we do successfully is we, we create at least a safe space, you know, um, for their testimony to be uh, heard and assessed in a very honest and objective way. And that is something very important to people who have suffered. Um, it, just to be heard and seen and believed is, oh, gosh, I, I, you know, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, we, uh, I, uh, I remember after doing Invisible War, we we did, you know, like you show the film in different places. And I uh, we had we had a Republican congressman had sort of nicely agreed to speak with us, which was very hard to get at the time. This is back in 2010. And so as a favor, he called me and said, would I come out and show the film? And he would speak. And I flew out to Ohio and I drove into rented a car and I drove into the parking lot. And as I'm getting out of my car, this woman walks up to me and she had Xerox. This was like, what, 2012 or something? She had taken a Xerox of my picture from the internet or something. So she had been watching every car that came in. And she walked up to me and she said, are you Amy Zering? And I said, yes. And she said, I'm not going to go in and watch the film 
it's too upsetting to me, but I drove three hours to meet you and thank you because I saw it when it came out and it's the first time I stopped blaming myself in 19 years. And I had to let you know that. That's more amazing than any award, any review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, she wasn't in the film. She didn't know me. I'd never interviewed her, but she'd seen the film and it finally made her feel seen and heard. And actually, Corey, I remember, called us. She had, the film had played at the Cleveland Film Festival and her family had come and her husband's family. And they always thought she was, you know, they weren't sure what to make. You know, Corey's always upset and they didn't understand PTSD symptoms and all that. And, and the her mother-in-law stood up and apologized in the theater to her wow. afterwards and said, I never saw, I never knew. I did not know enough. I didn't understand. I apologize. You know, I'm... Well, I, I think that's, you know, the importance of getting these stories out is that even people who are well-meaning don't understand. And, you know, even people like us thought we knew the entire story, right? There's so much more to be uh, to be learned about this. There's so much more of the truth out there. And, and uh, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, we as filmmakers, um, you know, have really dedicated ourselves to. And, and, and we have a, a law, you know, we have a really... And it's not just us. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, you know, art isn't made just by one or two people. I mean, this it certainly films. I mean, we have a really amazing team of editors and producers and um, who we worked with for a long, long time. And and we really sort of brought that all together, I think, on Alan B. Farrow. And and rather than I mean, in some ways, we it's it's really like a, a four, four and a half hour feature. I mean, we treat it the same way that we treat all our other films. I mean, we tried to craft it as so that it was as emotionally impactful, as rich, as, you know, as narratively strong, as well as being this really a thorough investigation. And that was that's a testament to this entire team of editors, producers and and everyone else, you know, on our, you know, in our company who was, you know, it was, who was really committed to, to getting this story out. Alan versus Pharaoh is now streaming on HBO and HBO Max. And that's it for this edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Danielle Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. <laughs>